Okay. <clears throat> How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone has the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your word that teaches us, instructs us, corrects us, and gives us guidance in how to uh, grow and mature as believers. And, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that uh, we might gain great insight into not only the doctrinal issues in uh, Acts 15, but that we might also uh, be challenged to understand your plan and purpose as it's laid out over the uh, various dispensations, and that we might also understand some things about how to go through a decision-making process and reach a conclusion uh, through the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts 15, which is referred to by most literature, most Christian literature, as the Jerusalem Council, although, as I've pointed out in the past, it's not really a formal council. It's more of a, of a uh, conference uh, where the leadership comes together, and they're dealing with one of the most fundamental issues uh, that we have to deal with in the Christian life, and that is the role of um, uh, the role of ritual or the role of of uh, secondary things to to salvation is there uh, something else other than faith required for salvation or for the spiritual life in acts 15:1 we're told what the basic problem is and that is that there are certain Jews from a pharisaical background who are emphasizing that the mosaic law specifically in terms of circumcision had to be followed, and this was causing a certain amount of anxiety. In fact, a Greek word that's used later on to uh, describe this trouble uh, could be translated uh, harassment, uh, trouble, consternation, and uh, uh, causing a lot of uh, uh, conflict within the uh, various congregations, not just in, not just in Jerusalem, but especially the, where there were a large number of Gentiles to the north. Uh, try emphasizing that faith plus circumcision was necessary for salvation and faith plus was necessary for uh, spiritual growth. So they come together. The first five verses, as we've studied last week, have to do with the <clears throat> just the introduction, the uh, explaining the uh, circumstances, is, is setting as Paul and Barnabas come down from Antioch in the north and come together with other leadership uh, leadership in the church. We read in verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider uh, this matter. And when there had been much dispute, then Peter rose up and began to uh, talk. So we see a, a glimpse of how they were uh, learning to resolve a doctrinal issue. And they're not... Um, they're not looking, uh, they're not getting involved in any kind of uh, navel-gazing in order to uh, get some kind of special uh, insight from God as to what they should do. 
because they already have the revelation they need to make the decision they need to make. This is one of those great passages that counters a lot of the uh, quasi-mysticism that is, uh, that is in the church. And I hear this from a lot of people all the time, that they think that somehow uh, God's going to tell them what to do in a decision-making situation. And what God has said is that he's given us his word, and we need to reflect upon his word and ask for him to guide and direct us in understanding his word, but his word's going to give us the what we need to make those decisions. He's not giving new revelation or new information. And so in this situation where there's a doctrinal matter that they have to resolve, and there's really two aspects to the problem they're facing. One is the doctrinal issue. Is circumcision or uh, an aspect of obeying the law necessary for either salvation or the spiritual life? And then there's a second issue, which is a social issue. Now, that's an important thing to talk about, and it's something that isn't talked about a lot, and it, it really goes into the area that uh, the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 in dealing with doubtful things, because you've got a, a, a social problem with the fact that you have uh, observant Jews who are socially trained, culturally trained, to observe the law and the dietary uh, uh, restrictions of the law. And now they're believers, but they may not be looking at following those aspects of the law as something related to either salvation or the spiritual life, but that's their background. That's the way they were they were raised. That's the way they were taught, and that's their, their comfort zone. And so to have Gentiles come in with other practices that can cause offense is also a part of this dynamic. So you have two problems. One is a doctrinal theological problem, and the other is in the area of doubtful things and in the gray area of of cultural and and social issues. And this is going to be important. I want to lay the groundwork a little bit for what we're going to see later on because this is something that hasn't been taught very well in a lot of congregations, and we have to remember Acts is a transitional book. But when we get down the road to uh, Acts chapter, I think it's around chapter 20, 21, when uh, Paul co- comes to Jerusalem, he's observing a vow, he's following the law, he's said to be someone who keeps the law. Well, wait a minute. If you're reading that, you say, well, wait a minute, what about... Uh, Acts 15, what about the Jerusalem Council? What about what Paul said to Peter, as we studied last time in, the, uh, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2? Uh, what, why is Paul keeping the law? Well, see, he's keeping the law not for salvation. He's not keeping the law for sanctification. He's observing the law because he's dealing with Jews for whom that is significant. And as Paul said, he tried to be all things to all people. In other words, he's trying not to intentionally be obnoxious or offensive to anyone and to take these things into account. But most of the Jews who made up the Christian church, the Christian community in Jerusalem, are are still going to the temple. The temple's still in existence. They're still observing a lot of the uh, uh, of uh, the Jewish uh, ritual calendar, 
And, but they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it for cultural and social reasons. So we have to come to understand some of these issues that are going on here that it wasn't, if you look at it just as there's a theological side to the issue, in which case you don't, the law has no relevance, and then there's the cultural, historical side. This was their ethnic background. This is their history. And so they would still want to observe Passover to remember that would be their Independence Day. Uh, they would remember Yom Kippur because for them as believers, that would have special significance because they would understand that as having been fulfilled in Jesus. But they're not observing these things in the sense that they think it's necessary or adds anything to their salvation or their spiritual life. Now, those are distinctions that are not made by too many people. And when we get to Acts 15, we're going to see this. There are clear theological issues, but when we get to the recommendations and the letter that the, that the, the elders and the apostles send out, it's dealing with the cultural, social issue side, not the theological, doctrinal side. So there's a lot to, to give us things to think about and expand our understanding a little bit. Now, last time I just kind of blew through this a little bit. I wanted to come back and make a couple of comments on it this evening. Uh, the leadership that comes together are, are uh, described in terms of two groups, the apostles and the elders. The term apostle here, as I've stated, referred to the 11, um, now 12 with Paul present, and elders refers to the pastors. Now, when we get into the Greek New Testament, there are three different words that are used to describe pastoral leadership. Now, over the course of church history, these terms, I believe, have been uh, misdefined, misused, and have come to represent some different uh, traditions in churches as to how they govern themselves. And we're not going to get into a whole extended discussion on that, but I'm going to introduce at least a couple of these concepts. You have the term elders, you have the term bishop, and you have the term pastor that are used to describe, I believe, the same person. There are other traditions, other church traditions, that have distinguished these, and they have uh, traditions that go back for, in some cases, thousands, uh, a couple thousand years. The Episcopal form of government, from the uh, Greek word for bishop, is, uh, uh, is one where, where you have pastors in an area, but then one person was elevated over the pastors in an area, and he became known by the end of the second century as the bishop over the other pastors in, the, in, in a particular geographical location. Uh, later on, coming out of the Protestant Reformation in reaction to the Episcopal form of government, which was everything, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is an, uh, an Episcopal form of government, uh, the uh, Pope is the Bishop of Rome, and he becomes the bishop over uh, the entire uh, universal church. Uh, so that's where that derives. Then you get the development through the Reformed churches of what becomes known as uh, plurality of elders or Presbyterian government. That's the term for, for elders. And uh, Presbyterian government usually has a, a uh, the governing of the local church is divided into two, two groups, 
a group of elders and a group of, of deacons. And then you have in pres- the Presbyterian denomination, you have an, uh, representatives from each congregation go to a, a, a higher group called a synod, which uh, represents or oversees a number of different congregations, and that's where you develop uh, that Presbyterian form of government. And then you have uh, uh, what's usually referred to as Baptist form of government, which is closest to what we have, which views the pastor as the elder, and then there's a board of deacons in a local church. Um, I'm not going to get into any more of an analysis of church government than that. What I had a great project given us when I was a student at Dallas Seminary in my third year. We had ecclesiology, pneumatology, and something else. Christology, I think. Christology, pneumatology, and ecclesiology. And we had a project, and one of the, the project was to be involved or attend uh, for several weeks churches with different forms of church government, and then to write an analysis of that government from a practical viewpoint. And what I, dis- what I discovered was it really doesn't matter what you call different functionaries and leadership position in churches, that basically they all, the su- successful churches all basically follow the same pattern. It doesn't matter what you call them. They, you may have at the, at the time I had, uh, uh, the elder government that I went to was at Believer's Chapel, which was built off of a somewhat um, uh, Plymouth Brethren type of model of a, of a congregation. And the pastor, teaching, pa- teaching elder, was a man by the name of uh, Lewis Johnson. And he was one of the, just the many elders. You know, he was one of many. He didn't, he didn't have the authority of the pastor. He was just one of the elders, and so he had a role as being a leader of the elder board, uh, he as being one of the elders and also under the authority of the elders as a member of the congregation. But let me tell you, S. Lewis Johnson, by weight of his training, education, his gravitas, and everything else, had uh, when, when Johnson, Dr. Johnson wanted something done a certain way, that's how it was done. But he, he didn't do that as sort of the pastor leader, uh, generalissimo of the congregation. Whereas you go to some, uh, some churches I'm familiar with in the missionary Baptist denomination or among independent Baptists, the pastor basically rules everything like a, uh, uh iron fisted dictator. And um, what I discovered was in those congregations, sometimes a pastor who has gained his position of leadership and influence by virtue of, of his building a relationship with the church actually functions in the same way that the other kind of pastor does. So in practical areas, there's not a lot of difference. Now, there are some other distinctions that are made that some churches have. I've been in, involved with about five different churches with the plurality of elders, and some have had what I think is silliness, where you have to have a unanimous um, uh, unanimous vote on everything before they do anything. And in some churches that works exceptionally well. In other churches it hasn't worked very well. And what I've discovered, I've been I've been in congregational churches that have worked pathetically poorly. If I can put two adverbs together, just just miserable 
congregations because the leaders won't lead. They won't do anything unless they feel like the congregation really wants them to do it, so they won't lead. And I've been in uh, elder congregations where they were just as bad. And what it boils down to is the quality of the leaders and the spiritual maturity of the leaders and the teaching from the pulpit. And that's what makes the difference. So it doesn't, in my view, ultimately, it doesn't matter what you call them because the successful, well-organized churches tend to have the same leadership with different labels. So sometimes they'll call the deacons elders. Sometimes they'll call the elders deacons. I don't get too worried about some of those things, but I do have my views as to what Scripture teaches. These words that are used in the text for pastor, elder, and bishop are seen to be synonymous, and we see this in, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. In Titus 1.5, Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 give requirements or basic minimal qualifications for uh, elders. In Titus 1.5, Paul introduces this to Titus, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then in, then he has an aside in verse 6 and in verse 7. He says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self Well, then he starts giving the qualifications for a bishop. But you see, bishop and elder both focus on the same person that's being, that's being appointed. So in Titus 1.5, we see that the term elder or presbyteros and bishop, episkopos, are, are synonymous. They both refer to the same person. In Acts 20, 17 uh, and 28, all part of the same section that describes uh, Paul's stopover in Miletus, a coastal town not far from Ephesus, but he couldn't make it to Ephesus, so he had the elders in Ephesus come down to meet him in, in Miletus. We see that opening statement in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church and then in verse 28, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves, talking to those elders, and to all the flock among which the God, God the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then we have the other noun. That's the noun for uh, episkopos. That's the noun episkopos for bishop. Okay, so they're called elders in verse 17. They're called uh, bishops in verse 28. But what do they do? They shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The word for shepherd there is the verb form. The noun is poimenos. The verb is poimino, meaning to shepherd. That's the word for what a, shepherd, a literal shepherd does with the sheep. So these are the three different words that are used, episkopos, poimino. Poimino is the verb used in, in um, what was that, Acts twenty twenty eight and presbyteros. The dis- each one of these words tell us something different about the role of the, the leader, the pastor of a congregation. One of the reasons, and this is a practical reason, for why I do not believe in plurality of elders, because I have actually pastored a congregation where I didn't have men who were qualified to be, past- to be elders. If So if this was going to be a plurality of elders situation, 
then you'd have to have a problem. There are a lot of congregations, smaller congregations, 10, 15, 20 people, that you may not have men who fit those qualifications. So if you're, the biblical pattern is to have a multiplicity of elders fitting those qualifications, then you got a problem. And I've seen a lot of churches like that, as a matter of fact. So that, that's a practical problem that you have. Uh, the episkopos looks at the leadership responsibility of the pastor. He's the, he's the leader of the congregation, the overseer. Uh, this is a word that was often used of a manager, uh, in a, uh, in a secular setting. Poimena emphasizes his function. He functions as the one who feeds the sheep. He, he, that's how he leads the sheep is through the feeding of the sheep. And presbyteros emphasizes that he has a level of spiritual maturity, not necessarily physical maturity. He may be uh, spiritually mature for his age, but he should have a measure of, uh, of uh, spiritual maturity to lead the congregation. So the, one of the reasons these three different words are used is to give a, a, a fuller perspective of the role of, of the leader. So when I look at the verse in Acts 15, 6, uh, now the apostles and elders, these would be referencing the leaders of the local churches, the pastors under the term elders, and then the apostles. And they come together in order to look into, to consider, to investigate the matter. And as they do that, uh, they're arguing. They're, they're getting into some lively discussion back and forth, and this may have gone on for a couple of days as they are struggling to understand the Scripture, their concept of grace, what has happened historically. Um, Luke doesn't go into all of the deals, uh, all of, the, all of the, the, the debates. He just summarizes and says, when there had been much dispute, that is, investigation, argument, discussion, and debate, um, Peter rose up, and we get his, his uh, conclusion. Now, the thing that I want you to focus on is the, that the authority that they go to in this debate is the revelation of God. Now, part of that revelation is New Testament revelation that hasn't been inscripturated yet. And part of it is Old Testament revelation that has been inscripturated. So it begins with Peter. Uh, Peter comes and he says, he rose up and he says, Men and brethren... Uh, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And just as another note, he, there, there weren't women present. This isn't because women are second-class citizens, which is what the uh, liberal progressives will tell you. It isn't because God has no significant role for, for women in the body of Christ, but that God has reserved the leadership responsibility in the church to the men. And uh, this is made very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse uh, uh, 8 and following, where uh, Timothy, I mean, Paul says to Timothy uh, that he prohibits him from having women as teachers or as exercising any level of authority uh, over men. This is one reason why uh, we... Uh, Cut off, uh, have a, roughly uh, at, at a rough age of about 12 or 13 as an age of, of puberty. This is why we cut off 
uh, having women teach in prep school to any of the kids over that age because uh, that we don't want to have women teaching uh, teaching men uh, in the Word. So that's the fulfillment of that. So uh, Peter rose up, said, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And so Peter here is referring back to the events that we covered in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when he, after seeing the vision of God where God lowered all of the different animals in a tablecloth before him and said, eat from anything, and Peter resisted that for a while because they were clean and unclean animals and he didn't want to violate the rules of kashrut, that's kosher, uh, he didn't want to violate the uh, rules of kashrut, so he uh, didn't do that. But finally he got the point that God was declaring these things now to be clean. And so he, and the point was that he could now, that wall of separation is broken down between Jew and Gentile, and that he could go to the, go then for to a Gentile home without violating the Mosaic law. Okay, so in those chapters, Peter learns that God's opened the door to the Gentiles. And Peter, as the leader of the apostles, is the one God chose to do that. Peter was the one that, that, that spoke on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. He's there taking the gospel to, uh, to the Jews on the day of Pe- uh, Pentecost when the church first started. He's there again in Acts chapter um, Seven, when the gospel goes to the Samaritans, Peter and John went up there, and Peter addressed the Samaritans, and he's there again opening the door of grace to the Gentiles in um, in Acts 15, uh, I mean Acts uh, 10 and 11. So he reminds them of this, that God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, the message of the gospel that would be a better translation we have a tendency for translators to always translate logos as word. Logos can mean message, it can mean word, it can mean idea, it can mean thing, it can mean a lot of different things. But in a phrase like this, message of the gospel is probably a little more precise, that the Gentiles should hear the message of the gospel and believe. Again, we see that the only thing required of for salvation is believe. It's faith alone. We have a little rubric that we often say around here called faith alone in Christ alone. And and we say it a lot, and I hear people cite it a lot, but often I hear people cite phrases that they don't really understand what they mean. There alone is used in that phrase twice. It's because you're modifying two different nouns. It's faith alone. It's not faith plus ritual faith plus ceremony, it's faith alone, and the object of faith is Christ alone. It's not Christ in the law, it's not Christ in baptism, it's not Christ in church attendance, it's not Christ and uh, persevering in good works, it is Christ alone. So it's not just faith alone in Christ, because there are those who have faith alone in Christ, but they bring other things in as the object as well. And it's not faith in Christ alone, because sometimes the faith is not alone. So it's faith alone in Christ alone. So 
<clears throat> the issue is that Peter emphasizes is hearing and believing. And then he says in verse 8, so God who knows the heart, this is the Greek word cardio nostes. Obviously, cardio is the Greek word for heart. Nostes comes from the word for knowledge. He's the heart knower. God knows the heart. He sees the thoughts, uh, inner thoughts of a man. <coughs> God who knows the heart acknowledged them. And that would refer to the Gentiles. Who knows the heart acknowledged them. Uh, in fact, it's more than simply acknowledging them. He is validating them as equal participants in the body of Christ with Jews. They are no better and no worse. They have equal uh, access to God through Jesus Christ, just as the Jews do. There's no racial distinction as there had been in the Old Testament. So God acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. And then here's the key, just as he did to us. So that 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 the Jews and Gentiles both enter into the body of Christ on the same basis, the same condition, which is faith alone in uh, Christ alone. It does not involve uh, involve the law. So he says this was the identical identical way that the Jews had uh, received the Holy Spirit. And he reemphasizes that in verse 9 as he continues and says, and made no distinction, that is, God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles. Everything is the same. They received the baptism by the Holy Spirit, entered into the body of Christ the same way we do, no distinctions, and this was done by purifying their hearts by faith. And the word translated purifying in the New King James is the Greek word katharizo, uh, to cleanse. This is a word used to describe in this context positional cleansing that occurred at the instant of salvation. We are cleansed in that process of the baptism by God the Holy Spirit as we are washed by the water of regeneration and renewed by the uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, our hearts are purified by faith. Now, the other word I wanted to bring out here is the word heart. God knows the heart in verse 8, and he purifies the heart by faith. The heart here refers to the inner man, uh, the immaterial part of man. It's not a technical, it doesn't refer to the biological organ. In fact, I haven't found an example yet in Scripture where cardio, cardio refers to the biological organ. It refers to the inner man or some part of the inner man. Sometimes it refers to just the entirety of the immaterial part of man. Sometimes it is a, a synonym for his soul. Sometimes it is, uh, but most of the time it focuses on the inner core, the, the center of something, is how we use the word heart metaphorically even in English. Uh, we thought, talk about uh, understanding the heart of a matter. That's the very center of an argument or issue. And uh, here it's just referring to, the, the. I think, the totality of the immaterial part of man without making distinctions between soul and spirit or mind and emotions and, and volition. It's just God knows the immaterial, knows the inner part of, of makeup of a man. Um, uh, it's used that same way in Proverbs chapter 4, which we're studying on Sunday morning in the last section. It's used to, in the, in the proverb that says, uh, 
guard your hearts, for out of the heart come the issues of life. Their heart in the Hebrews used in that same sense, referring to everything that's going on in the inner man, uh, thinking, volition, emotions to guard, protect it uh, by, by wisdom. So God knows the heart, knew what they were believing, and this is another application of this is why, uh, excuse me, as you can tell, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Um, as, you, uh, as you know, in some churches they'll have a um, walking the aisle invitation after church. Other congregations they'll have, uh, similar to what I do on Sunday morning, closing prayer, uh, reiterate the gospel, challenging those who need to be saved to be saved. Sometimes I've heard pastors say, all you need to do is to tell God you believe. Think about it a minute. Do you need to tell God you believe? I mean, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you say, you know, you think, that's true, I believe it. You think you need to tell God you believe it after that? No, God knows the heart. He knows what you believe. You don't need to say, oh, I've got to pray the sinner's prayer, or I've got to pray, God, I want you to know that I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The instant you go, aha, I believe it, God knows it. He knows everything. He knows the heart. So... um it's not really necessary to take people through those redundancies like that. Uh, it's not wrong in the sense that it's heresy or anything like that. It's just not necessary. It's just something that people do. Uh, there are a lot of people, I think, that are going to be in heaven because they invited Jesus into their heart because I think God deals graciously with stupid people who present the gospel poorly. But that verse doesn't have anything to do with getting saved. It's a fellowship verse. To invite Jesus in, in Revelation 3.20, it's addressed to the church. Jesus has been excluded from the church, no fellowship, and so he stands at the door and knocks, saying, I want to be a part of this congregation. It's a fellowship verse, not a salvation verse. But there are a lot of people who have misused that. Sometimes I've wanted to do a series on uh, famous people saved by non-salvation verses. Because it's amazing how many different people historically, uh, pastors, theologians, who have read some verse out of the Bible, took it completely out of context, and um, trusted in Christ. God the Holy Spirit somehow manages to overlook our idiocies and ignorances and save us because what is going on in the heart is that we're trusting in Christ alone to save us. We have faith alone in Christ alone. And at that instant, we're cleansed. We experience that uh, positional cleansing uh, and as we enter into Christ and are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is the <clears throat> what Peter uh, describes, that there was no distinction. There's, we're all saved the same way. Believing Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah. He is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Then he says, in conclusion, he challenges him. He says, now, therefore, if this is true, and what he's referring to is how God gave him special revelation in that event in Acts 10 and 11, he says, now, if that's true, and... Uh, he's, he's, he's assuming all of that in the background. This is the subtext. Why do you test God 
by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples. And he refers to the Gentile believers as disciples, which shows that he has no doubt that they're saved. He says, why do you put a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And the word that's translated test is parazo, which has that idea of testing God or trying God, or why do you put this additional burden on there? And he refers to the law as as a yoke. A yoke is that which was, was heavy, made out of wood, that if you were joining two oxen together, uh, to pull something, this is how you would connect them together. It restricts their freedom. They're, it's like handcuffing two people together. Uh, you don't really have any freedom anymore. And Paul uses the same phrase in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And Paul is in Galatians talking about those who are trying to uh, uh, apply the law as necessary for sanctification. Now, there's a difference between saying that you're, if somebody says, you know, I'm going to follow certain precepts in the Mosaic Law because I just think it's a good thing to do. If they don't think it makes them more savable and don't think it makes them uh, any better spiritually, that's fine. That's a cultural or social issue. That doesn't have anything to do with theologically. If they're saying, I have to follow the law because it's going to make me better spiritually, it's going to enhance my spiritual life, it's going to, um, you know, I'm going to be a better Christian if I follow the law, then they're dead wrong. They've made it a theological issue. And so that's what had happened in, in Galatia. They, they had bought into the lie of these Judaizers that were saying they had to, uh, get under the law. And so they, uh, <clears throat> Paul, uh, Paul, both Paul and Peter use this idiom, uh, to refer to the uh, Mosaic law or the Torah as a yoke. And this same, uh, metaphor is used to describe the Torah in the Mishnah. And, um, uh, even though rabbinic writings uh, the Second Temple period and later are often filled with a lot of uh, praise for the glories and the value of the Torah, uh, the average person really hated its burdens. It was, it was not only that, but they had so loaded the, law, the Mosaic Law, which had only 613 commandments, with another three or 4,000 commandments uh, of their own from the Mishnah and then another four or 5,000 commandments from the Talmud, it made it almost impossible to do anything, made it very difficult to do anything, uh, which is why it was referred to as a, uh, as a yoke. Uh, never had Israel been able to perfectly keep the law. It was, in fact, it was impossible. God made it that way, not to teach that they, this is how you can be righteous, but that, see, you can't perfectly fulfill the law, uh, so you'll never make it. You can't rely on your own righteousness. Uh, God was going to need to replace the Mosaic Covenant with a uh, different covenant. So this is the point that is being made here that none of uh, Peter is making. None of us could ever, ever fulfill that. So why are we trying to force them to do something we could never do? And so to demand this, he's implying that, first of all, it would put God to the test. And second, it would put the disciples under an unbearable 
uh, obligation that they couldn't fulfill. So it's wrong on both accounts. In verse 11, he says, but we believe, in contrast, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, we being the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles, that is, without the law. The law is not relevant to salvation. Uh, it's not relevant to the process of justification. It is faith alone in Christ alone, not faith plus the ritual of the Mosaic law, such as the ritual of circumcision, and it's not in faith in Christ and the, the Torah. So he's again emphasizing that for Jew and Gentile, the gospel is the same. Now, I want to make a little side note here. There have been some in the evangelical community that have sought a way to get Jews saved apart from faith in Jesus. This is sometimes called the two-covenant way of salvation. And I point this out because there, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on a lot of evangelicals who work in the Jewish community and in Jewish evangelism or just with Jewish organizations to somehow figure out a way that these wonderful people that are their close friends, that are uh, God-believers, that, that love the Old Testament, that are uh, moral and conservative and li- living good lives and believe much the same thing, that, that they, they, they just have to they're try to figure out a way that they've got to be going to heaven. How could God uh, leave them in eternal condemnation? And there are two ways that's been expressed in our times. One is this movement that's come out of England. Um, N.T. Wright was an Anglican bishop, but N.T. Wright wasn't the first uh, to come up. It's called, for if you want to know the technical term, it's called variegated nomianism. See, I can read literature too. Variegated nomianism. Variegated means like, like a coat of many colors, many different patterns. Nomianism from the Greek word namas, meaning law, Variegated mean there's law for the Jews, law for the Gentiles, and um, uh, and and this has led to a lot of different issues coming out of uh, N.T. Wright's theology, and I've mentioned that some in the past. But one of the motives that lay behind the the original thinkers in this movement was that they were trying to figure out a way that that godly godly appearing Jews would be going to heaven without trusting in Jesus. Well, you also have this other view that I mentioned called the two-covenant view. John Hagee, who is the founder, and this has nothing to do with the beliefs of Christians United for Israel, but John Hagee is the founder of Christians United for Israel, which is sort of a Christian counterpart to APAC, and it's known by its the acronym of its initials, KUFI, and Kufi does some really good work because there are a lot more Christians than there are Jews, and so they can generate a, a lot more impact on some things. And, and there's over a million members of Kufi now, and when uh, somebody does something uh, anti-Semitic, a uh, French president recently uh, made some negative uh, anti-Semitic remark and within two days, he had received over 100,000 emails from Kufi members 
objecting to what he said. So there, there's real power here in the political sphere. When issues have come up in Congress related to Israel, these organizations like APAC and CUFI uh, do a good job. Uh, they, they focus people as voters to influence their, their, their legislators. The, neither organization or theological, I want to make that clear because some people have some problems because of John Hagee's theology and his, the Kufi is not a theological organization. It is a political organization to organize, uh, voters. I'm not a member of Kufi for various reasons. This isn't one of them. But he has been accused by some Christians and maybe with justification for teaching this and believing this that there are, uh, that, that Jews are saved by another covenant. Christians are saved by the new covenant, believing in Jesus. Jews are saved by another covenant, implying that it's under the Abrahamic covenant. He does have one of his uh, regional directors has written a book on what Jews wish Christians knew about Jews, something like that. And he really does believe in that two-covenant view. Um, We had uh, uh, Hagee speak at the banquet at the um, pre-trib conference two or three years ago. Oh, it's longer than that, five or six years ago. And he specifically came out and rejected that view. Um, but there are still some who think that he holds it. I don't want to get into that. I'm just using that as an illustration that there are some people, uh, and even today, who are trying to find another way to get Jews into heaven other than believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And I understand some of the pressures and some of the uh, issues that they deal with because I have some very uh, wonderful Jewish friends that are not Christians, and there's always that pressure there to try to get the people you like into heaven somehow uh, in some way. But what Peter says here is the way that Jews get into heaven is the same way any human being gets into heaven. God's not being racist here. Christians aren't being racist here. This is God's word. Uh, God's information, not ours. I was the same way in the Old Testament. Everybody throughout all of history got to heaven the same way, and that's believing the promise of God. In the Old Testament, it was believing the future fulfillment of his promise of providing a Savior. Now it's looking back on the fact that he has fulfilled that promise and provided a Savior in Jesus Christ. And so it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, Peter says, we Jews are saved in the same manner as Gentiles. There's no distinction in how people are saved. Okay, it's all the same gospel. Now, everybody, the whole multitude, so there's a large number of people there, they, the whole crowd, it's probably a better way of, of, of translating that. Multitude implies maybe hundreds, and it wasn't that large at all. Then all the crowd kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas came up, and they're, Paul and Barnabas came up, and they're describing what happened on the first uh, missionary journey in uh, Crete and in uh, southern Galatia, in Antioch, and uh, Iconium, Lister, and Derby. And so there, they hear all of these reports of how God is working. Uh, tremendously among the Gentiles in the same way that he worked among the Jews with the signs and wonders and everything else. And after they finish with their report, everybody's quiet, organized, polite. Nobody's uh, catcalling or throwing things. James, now this is James, the half-brother or the brother of the humanity of Christ. He is the son of Joseph and Mary. 
Uh, he's the author of the Epistle of James, and this James was also the um, leader of the church in in Jerusalem, and was for the next uh, uh, from about 42 or 43 until about uh, the early 60s. He was the leader of the church in in, in Jerusalem. And he had quite a reputation of being a, a, one who prayed a lot such that he was on his knees so much that they were callous like a camel's knees. So he was called, he had a nickname, he was called Old Camel Knees. But James stands up and everyone listens to him. He says, men, brethren, listen to me. Simon, using the Aramaic name of Peter, uh, <clears throat> uh, Simeon, or Simon would be the uh, Greek form. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So he is starting off uh, reviewing what um, the evidence is, Simon's evidence that God is taking out a people for his name from among the Gentiles. God has always had a people. He had a remnant of Jews. He's now uh, focusing on Gentiles. And then Simon says, I mean, then James says, or Yaakov in the, in the Hebrew it would be, uh, with this the words of the prophets agree. So now he's going to go to Old Testament revelation. Paul and Peter have both referred to the new revelation God has given them related to the church age. It's not yet inscripturated. But James is going to go back to Old Testament revelation, and he's going to go to a passage uh, from Amos. Now, there are several different passages he could go to in the prophets. That's why he is going to say in his uh, uh, introduction here in verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. You can go to a number of passages, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, a- Amos, or Amos, um, and you can uh, find passages that talk about Gentile salvation in the millennial kingdom. But he chose this passage because it sort of focuses things a, a, a little more precisely without ritual being a part of it. And he's not saying that this, this prophecy in uh, Amos 9, 11, and 12 is being fulfilled. In the past, I've gone through the fact that there are um, four different ways in which Old Testament prophecies are cited as being fulfilled in the New Testament. The first is a literal prophecy that is fulfilled literally, such as uh, Matthew 2, we find a quote from Micah 5.2 that the, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He is the fulfillment. He's born in Bethlehem. The second is a, is a type uh, is a type, and that is a depicted also from Matthew chapter 2 when there's a quote that the passage is fulfilled that out of Egypt I will call my people. Uh, just as Israel came out of Egypt, that was a type or a picture of something that would occur in the life of Christ or it's used to portray something that would occur in the life of Christ after uh, Joseph and Mary were told to flee because Herod was going to kill the babies. Uh, they went down to Egypt, and then when they came back out of Egypt, uh, that is the uh, fulfillment of the type. So it's just a, a picture there. It's not a literal prophecy. It's a typological prophecy and, and a historic fulfillment. And then you have another category that is a, uh, 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 it's not a, it's a historical statement with an application, a historical statement with an application. And the example of um, uh, that historical statement 
uh, with an application had to do with when uh, the the Rachel was crying over her children. It's a quote from Lamentations, I believe, or Jeremiah, and and this refers to the mothers of Israel crying, weeping as their sons and daughters were being hauled off into captivity in the Babylonian uh, captivity. That was a literal historical event. Uh, that is um, that is later applied to the mothers of the infants that are slaughtered in Bethlehem. Uh, it, it wasn't a prophecy in the Old Testament at all. It just to state a historical fact. But it is used to, by application to illustrate what's going on, what's happening as the mothers in Bethlehem are weeping over their slaughtered uh, uh, children at the time of Herod. Uh, that's the idea that the, the, the Old Testament statement is being, something is taken out of it that is simply applied to the current situation. It's not saying it is the fulfillment of the prophecy, only that there's something we learn from this Old Testament prophecy that, that this, it, that validates what we're looking at right, uh, right now. Uh, one other word I wanted to emphasize when the, these what the words of the prophets agree is the word symphoneo. You know, we have a word in English called symphony a harmony of things that come together. So all the words of the prophets harmonize. They all support this same idea is what uh, James is saying. Now here's the quote. After this I will return and uh, will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, <clears throat> who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, the precise wording here does not fit the wording of the Masoretic text. We've run into these issues before. Uh, the, the apostles are often using their Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament. The wording differs a little bit from the Masoretic text. And the words here differ even from the standard, what became the standard uh, Septuagint text later on. And some people have tried to make a doctrinal issue out of some of these variations, but the reality is that with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, much of um, there were a number of uh, Septuagint manuscripts at Qumran that had the exact same reading of what, this quote that James has, which shows that he just has memorized one particular version of the, of the Septuagint. It is the variants don't change the doctrine, don't change the ideas at all, and so by quoting it, it's uh, it's just as valid and has the authorization of God the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, he wouldn't have uh, had James quote it. Even though it doesn't reflect the Hebrew text, it gets a stamp of approval by the fact that it's included here. Now, in this slide, what I've done is, in the lower half of the slide, I've got the uh, text from Amos uh, 9, 11, and 12. Uh, this is a, basically a passage. And I've also pointed this out in the past that sometimes the writers of the New Testament will quote this much of a Hebrew text from the Old Testament and they're just going emphasizing one word or one phrase, but they'll give the whole context quoting uh, one or two verses. And that's the case here because he's just zeroing in on part of what is said in... Um, uh, the middle of Amos 9.12. And that middle line, you said, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. 
the implication of that statement that Amos is drawing out is that God has a plan to save a vast number of Gentiles as well. There's not only a Jewish remnant in the Messianic kingdom or in God's plan for the future, but there is a Gentile remnant as well. God is not restricting his soteriological plan to Jews. He's going to save Gentiles also. So he's looking at that and saying, look, here's a prophecy that's not going to be fulfilled uh, till the, the Messiah comes with his kingdom. But the point that this shows is that part of the kingdom in the future is going to be made up of Gentiles, so there's no problem with Gentiles being included in this dispensation uh, either. And that's the, the basic thrust of it. Now, there are some people uh, who come along and say rebuilding the tabernacle of David is that, that that's, that's a reference to the Davidic lineage, and that's true. That part of it's true. Uh, the tabernacle of David is just a, uh, a way of referring to the Davidic line that ceased with when Zedekiah was taken off the throne in 586 B.C. And Jesus, of course, is the descendant of David, and he will fulfill those Davidic covenant promises. But they go on to say that the church is this rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. But that misses the whole point. That's a non-literal interpretation. The tabernacle of David refers to the house of David, the house and the lineage of David, and the church doesn't fulfill that. Jesus fulfills that, and that will occur in the in the future. Uh, this is used to support what is called replacement theology, which is a way of saying God no longer has a plan for the Jews. He only has a plan for the Gentiles. And the replacement theology crowd is very popular among the world people who are denominations who are part of the World Council of Churches, like the United Presbyterian Church, United Church of Christ, um, uh, several other uh, denominations, uh, United Methodist Church, and they're always uh, blaming Israel for all kinds of uh, atrocities towards the Palestinians. They're always involved in these boycott and divestment maneuver, uh, uh, manipulations to to put pressure on Israel to give up land that is rightfully theirs, legally theirs, historically theirs. And so you just need to be aware of the dangers of replacement theology. God never went back on his word. And then James goes on to say these things were known to God from eternity and are all his works. Therefore, he concludes, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, two important words here. The first is the word um, trouble is the Greek word uh, paranekleo, which means to trouble, to annoy, to add extra trouble to somebody, or to harass them. So he's viewing this as we're just harassing these Gentiles because they don't have the background we have. Why do we want to harass all these Gentile men by making them get circumcised? And um, later on, when when Paul and Barnabas travel back north with their report that, no, you, you guys don't have to get circumcised, everybody rejoiced. There's some humor in that text. I just wanted to get that out there. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble or harass or put additional burdens on those from among the Gentiles who are what? Who are turning to God, epistrepho. Now, remember, I've talked about this in the past. There are two different words that are used in Greek for different aspects of the turning. Epistrepho means to turn, to change direction. Metanoeo means to change your mind. Those are the two words on the left. They are the counterparts of the two words on the right, Shuv, which again, like epistrepho, means to turn, 
and Naham means to uh, have uh, uh, repent. It uh, doesn't really have an emotional context, as I pointed out. That's how it's usually translated, though. Um, but these are the two words. So I pointed out also that the way they work together is the yellow circle is the, the uh, field of meaning for uh, repent, for metanoeo. Uh, you would first change your mind, and then you change direction. So turning epistrepho is a broader base word, cover, covers everything including metanoeo, which is repent. On a spectrum, it would be like this. First you repent, you change your mind about something, then you turn, and you end up believing. So somebody who believes has repent, has changed their mind and they've turned. It's just assumed that would be part of the process. Sometimes people get wrapped around the axle. Do you have to repent in order to be saved? Oh, yes and no. You have to understand it right. It doesn't mean repent from your sins, but it's not a stated condition. Uh, if you can get saved from reading the Gospel of John, which says that these things, meaning the Gospel of John, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name, it never, John never mentions the word repent. But repent is also sort of a subtext in belief. If you be, go from believing one thing to something else, you've turned, you've changed your mind. So in that sense, it's a subtext. But it really gets off into a, uh, often creates a non-issue type of, of argument. And then what, what they have to do is write them to abstain from, there are four things they have to do, and I'm going to finish this up pretty quickly. I'll come back and review this again next time. Uh, that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Now, this is the area of doubtful things that we run into in Romans, uh, thir- uh, Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. There's, as Paul says, there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols because the idols are nothing. The meat hasn't become some, been tainted or anything. But that may bother some people. So for conscience sake, don't do something offensive to people if they're not mature enough or knowledgeable enough to understand the issues. So that's a social issue. It's not a doctrinal issue to abstain from things polluted by idols. Sexual immorality, that's porneia. Uh, things strangled and from blood. Things strangled under the, Mo- under the Mosaic law. Things were, uh, animals were not supposed to be eaten if they were strangled. They had their, their uh, throats slit. And they weren't to drink blood or, blood or eat blood, like blood pudding and things of that nature. So uh, there, there's a child's game. You know, what, 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 look at these four things. Which thing doesn't fit? Which thing doesn't fit up there? Sexual immorality. Very good. So this sexual immorality here isn't referring to fornication. It is, porneia was a very broad word. And it also was used to apply to illegitimate uh, marriages according to the Mosaic law. And that meant usually marrying somebody who was a kissing cousin, who was too closely related uh, according to Jewish law. And so... Uh, the idea here is they, these are not doctrinal issues. They've already solved the doctrinal issues. They don't need to uh, obey the law to be saved or to be sanctified. But it's a good idea if you're going to socialize with Jews not to offend them. So um, we just think it's a good idea that you avoid things that have uh, been sacrificed to idols, uh, sexual immorality in terms of 
uh, illegitimate marriage, marriages are from things strangled or from blood. I'll talk about this more next time. But that's uh, that's what they're looking at. So the issue they come down to is in the gray areas. Uh, it's not related to doctrine. It's related to if you're going to socialize and hang out with Jews, then you need to be socially acceptable to Jews who may not understand grace as well as you. That's their point. So it go, goes over to the whole doctrine of weaker brethren. We'll come back next next week and and uh, finish up the chapter. Father, we're thankful for this time to come together to understand grace a little more clearly, understand these issues between the absolutes and the, the relatives of doubtful things. And, Father, we just pray that we might be sensitive to those around us in terms of our, our presentation of the gospel and that we might um, make the gospel very clear that it's just trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.